You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of these crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined with, once again, my good friend, Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at Harvard School of Public Health. How are you doing, buddy? Hello. I'm doing all right. How are you? Good. Happy Mother's Day to your mother. <laughs> Thank you on behalf of her. <laughs> <laughs> You're so welcome. Mark's again not here. He was. I thought we were going to get him, but he got a little swamped. I think he's teaching now. So we're going to try to redo our schedule a little bit to see if we can fit him in more often next couple of weeks. And maybe we'll find a way to get him next week. Something like that. So let's see what's going on. It's cold here. Once again, but uh, I'm hopeful this is the last stretch that I think by Wednesday will be fully in spring mode. I hear birds chirping and your neck of the woods in the background. So that's oh, yeah. awesome. It's, it's, it's great. <laughs> Sounds wonderful over there. Yeah, we are going to do a little bit of a speed around today because I got a late start. Uh, it's always post holidays in this family just wrecks us no matter what, <laughs> Stephen. It was Mother's Day. It was the first time that my mother-in-law came into our house. I was just talking to you, Stephen, off the record before we started recording that I just realized the first, the last time she had come in, I was wondering like, ah, oh, gosh, when was the last time she came into our house? I didn't know. I didn't have any pictures. And I think it was March 1st because of 2020, right? Our oldest had to get a surgery, just get a skin tag removed. And I saw the cases starting to rise, like we've got to commit to this. So we did it March 1st and she came over to watch the boys, the other two boys while we were gone. And that's the last time she's been over since then. And we barbecued, we got a free grill from one of our families. So thank you. Ashley, I know I don't think she listens to this, but nonetheless, we got a free grill from her. So we grilled out. It was an awesome time. Good smells. We have, we have a bounty castle that was given to us last year. The boys went crazy on it. So we had a great time. So it was good stuff. Let's get into this stuff before we run out of time. So same things, reviews. We love them. Keep them coming. You can do that on Apple Podcasts. There's a couple of directories as well. If you can support us, that'd be helpful. Patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. As little as $5 a month goes a long way. Or a one-time gift, PayPal, Venmo, all in the show notes. If you want to check it out, hugely be grateful. A Living the Real podcast came out with a new one last Wednesday. So getting ready to do another one, another fun one that I did. I'm super excited about the one I'm going to record today about two crazy words that I realized need to be more in our life. And that is waste and what is it? Waste and friction. Because I've realized in my own life, I try to live a frictionless life. And I realized, I think that's like the epitome of living the life. And I realized, no, that actually bites you in the butt a lot. So we're going to talk about friction and adding it to your life and waste. And if you can, really appreciate it. Come and subscribe to it, download it, because here's the deal. I want to bring on guests and more people. I love Steven. I love Mark. But he, but when the numbers get higher and the subscribers get higher, then I get better guests to come. So check it out. Uh, download it. Subscribe if you can. It'd be a great uh, help to me and to move it forward to the next level. Okay, so let's get going into all the great news. I want to start with this, Stephen. So before we get into COVID-related stuff, I saw this from The Atlantic. This is beyond my pay grade when it comes to, I'm not into this stuff, academic journals, all these kind of things when it comes to sci the science realm. I, it, just, it just piqued my interest where it talked about this like science paper meme nails academic publishing. So you said, when I said this to you, that you've seen this meme going around. It's been going crazy in your neck of the woods. I have never seen this up until this point. What Take us along this ride of academic publishing and maybe what The Atlantic is trying to propose about its faults and where you might agree and maybe disagree a little bit with the direction The Atlantic went on, on academic publishing. Because clearly, it's been a huge significance with COVID. And there's been so much more going on, and we've been mining that, or particularly you and Mark have. So guide us on this. So what's going on with this? 
Yeah, so I think this gives us a, a nice opportunity to take a step back and look at one of the themes that has been a part of a lot of the conversations we've had over the past year, which is this question of academic publishing, what mm-hmm. role it plays in our scientific knowledge, in our cultural knowledge, in our political systems, all of these kinds of things. It's, it's, it's really profound. And so the idea here is that this past week, there's this famous comic. It's especially famous among nerdy people like me, scientists and uh, scientists and engineers. That's, I first came across it when I was in the engineering dorm back at CU Boulder. And is- it's the comic's called XKCD. It features yeah. generally stick figures and like really like rudimentary drawings of things, but it's really quite funny. And this particular comic, uh, it was called 12 Types of, uh, I think, 12 Types of Scientific Papers. And it's a really tongue-in-cheek sort of portrayal of scientific publishing. And so it it gives these false titles of a bunch of different articles <laughs> that, that sort of give themes of how, uh, of, of certain types of scientific articles that you, you tend to come across. Like, why I'm a good scientist and all of my colleagues are not. Or like, <laughs> we applied <laughs> sure. CRISPR to this one thing again. And like, how to, you know, <laughs> it and so it's yeah. like these kinds of like, tropes that you come across. And so this, it's interesting because this comic really took off amongst scientists. I've seen it on Twitter, which is actually a remarkable forum for scientific communication. There's been a lot of communication on Twitter during the pandemic. But people I know in different fields have been making their own version of this comic, sort of substituting the titles that are in the comic for things in their own fields that are sort of field specific, but, you know, funny ways of talking about the themes that arise in their field. And so what the Atlantic article was pointing out, and and I think this was an editorial from, from a scientist himself. Who who had seen this circulating in his own field, talking about what, what does this say about academic publishing? And on the sure. one hand, there's a cynicism, right, where what uh, an attack of the Atlantic article was saying that it's sort of like in a way lifting up the veil on scientific publishing and showing how petty and repetitive and incremental some a lot of scientific so-called progress or certainly scientific articles can be. I, I think there's some truth to that. The academic scientific institution is is a human institution like all others and within those human institutions this is this is part of our our livelihood we support ourselves and our families based off of our scientific output and so sometimes those incentives aren't aligned in in the best direction and it really takes a great amount of or at least a sufficient amount of virtue and honesty and courage to to make sure that those incentives that aren't aligned towards robust, clear, principled scientific reporting to make sure to make sure that you're doing that and not just publishing for the sake of publishing. Sure. So I think that there are there are incentives that need to be really examined and realigned. But I think we also need to recognize that we're never going to have a perfect system here either. Yeah. And, and that was one of the things that I took issue with to some extent with the article is that it's there. I do think that there's value in some incremental scientific progress. That's uh, historians and philosophers of science have written extensively about how that's just how science works. It's yeah. built off of a sort of exploring this space in these very incremental ways. And a lot of scientific research actually doesn't really end up bearing fruit. But it's the work of this entire community that does finally find these corners of thought and of existence and reality that finally do. It's, oh, we finally stumbled upon something new. And it takes all of this effort at all of the fringes of science to really get there. And and that does lead to a certain feeling of futility sometimes, <laughs> where that can give rise <laughs> to articles like this, where it's like, oh my gosh, there's another article with this yeah, same sure. sort of theme. It's absolutely true that these things arise. But I think that there are absolutely issues and mixed incentives in scientific research. But I do think that there's there's some value to the system as well. And, and just because this thing 
was humorous does not necessarily mean that scientific publishing is, is is a worthless act. Sure. Where is the rub coming from this? I'm curious because it's just, is it just like the numerous amount of like re- articles being published that then real scientists have to wade more through it. And so it's just exhausting for the real scientists. Like the, or maybe the quote where the, the scientists looking for good information to act like junk, 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 junk. Is that the issue? Right. It's just trying to, it's just psychologically overwhelming for the amount of crap that comes your way. Is that the big rub or is it actually, is it causing actually, and maybe it's a both and situation or is it causing a problem to actually advance scientific research? That's the problem. Right. Yeah, it's a couple of things. And and I think this is a good spot to bring it back to COVID, where especially during the pandemic, these scientific articles have had a sort of cultural and political valence that they normally don't have. News outlets will pick up on preprints before they've been you know published or peer yeah. reviewed, and we'll take them and explain. And all of a sudden, they become common knowledge all around the world. And that's I think that's where especially some of the rub comes in here, where yeah. if if these things aren't being done, you know, with with a great deal of scrutiny, and reflection, and honesty, and all of these kinds of things that you know, if there's any temptation to fudge your statistics, which is really, really, really bad. And I want to yeah. make clear, like, that's not I, I don't think that's something that people are doing in a very yeah. widespread yeah. manner, but but it will happen sometimes. And yeah. if that does happen, then I think we need to realize that lives can be at stake, livelihoods can be at stake, with that that information really does carry a lot of real world impact. And in some ways, we're the producers of that vanguard of information. We're right at the edge and and trying to inform the rest of our community, the rest of our world of what is what is the case and what is not. So we run the risk of, for example, supporting treatments that aren't effective or or proposing interventions that that don't actually work, something like that. In addition to making it harder to wade through the thousands and thousands and thousands of papers that have been published on COVID, for example. And to some extent, it's just a waste of time. There's like, we have like people who have received a lot of academic training. Do we really want them to sort of like... Mm producing things that aren't actually <laughs> that valuable. Yeah. And so there's an element of waste, there's an element of risk, and there's an element of just distraction. And, and, and that's where the issues arise. So it's certainly not a victimless crime if, to the extent that there is this, this phenomenon going on in science. But again, I think that it's, I, I don't have the solution necessarily, and we'll never have sort of a, <laughs> a, a, a pure scientific field that is, you know, every step of the way is generating this sort of earth-shattering new revelation about how the world works either. Yeah. Okay. I was just curious, is it something that you guys just have tolerated for quite a long time? It seems like it. This is not like a new revelation, but this is coming to the surface. It sounds to me what you're trying to say is because of COVID, it seems like now we have, quote, laymen and women peeking into your system more. I'm sure it was before. Right. These things are all publicly available. Once you put them to a preprint, pretty much anybody could read them. That's why the media is picking them. Before COVID, it was kind of like all you nerds had it. And there was, there was other people who were like lay nerds, right? Like looking at it and watching it. But now it's become the focus of attention of all these people who don't have the credentials to actually cipher through things. So is that probably one of the biggest reasons why maybe this article has come out? Like, now we look like idiots because we have all this stuff. And now all these like these lay people are peeking like, oh, that's a good one. That's neat. Let's just put right. that on. And then we're like, oh, come on. That's not, we'd have never chosen that article to elevate to the top as some kind of you know, information to give to the public. Right. Right. Yeah. I think there are a couple of things here. It's true that there is, there have been a lot of big shifts in the practice of science and not, <laughs> certainly not all of them have been for the better. It may be true. And I think, I think our, 
some pretty compelling arguments have been made that the average quality of research has maybe been going down in some ways, or, or like we're publishing yeah. smaller units and not having these bigger stories. But you're right. And we've talked about this before, but like, what exactly is science? What are we doing here? And the goal is to build consensus. It's not a, usually a single article. It's not a single finding that revolutionizes a field. It's this sort of building evidence. And when we finally find a consensus, and then we say, we've seen this from a bunch of different angles, and so we can really believe that this is true. But that's a very different angle than the news cycle that picks up a preprint. Uh, we haven't had a chance to discuss this, to reflect on it, to weigh it in yep. light of other types of evidence. And so it's taking sort of the scientific progress and sort of removing it from its context. And when you do that, I think really dangerous things can happen. Yep, absolutely. And curious for you or maybe your colleagues, how do you pick stuff out? Because I haven't actually mined this stuff. So this is more people have never seen this database. I just imagine there's just tons of stuff being thrown into it. And even now with COVID, just constantly inundated with new, quote, new information. How do you then pick out like the sweet stuff, the gold? Do you typically look at, okay, this is by done by this group of people. I trust them. So I'm going to read them first, which then of course, then all, I, I think of it as like the mom and pop shops suffering. Then the little groups are suffering because they're not connected to a big credible. And because there's so much stuff, you got to pick something. Right. Do you typically go to like just who your trustworthy sources are and just start there and, and, and sort that way? Yeah, so that's that's a really difficult element, right? So this is where some of the human side of the scientific, yeah, you know, body can really make it difficult, especially for people who are trying to establish themselves. And this is always an issue for early career researchers, but certainly for you know people who are like bridging into a different field, it's very difficult because you're right. So oftentimes you gravitate towards certainly groups and people who you trust who have done good work yeah. in the past, and that's not always a guarantee of good work in the future, yeah. but it can help sift through some of this. To a large extent, this is the role that journals play. So we start with these preprints that are just posted on MedArchive, and everything looks like everything else. But journals, by going through the editorial and the peer review process, then help sift through some of this and bring some of those things to the surface and say, we've reviewed this with a team of editors who are looking for relevance and a team of peer reviewers who are looking for accuracy. And we can say that this is trustworthy and this is worth paying attention to. Of course, that's very imperfect as well, because oftentimes yeah. those editors and peer reviewers are looking for those same people who they recognize yeah. or or methods that they're familiar with or are trying to you know promote their own sort of biases in the field. So that's an issue, but it's part of the way that it works. Yeah, so it can be very tricky, yeah. but that's part of it. And when I'm when I'm reading through uh, things like this, I usually pay attention to all of these things. So things that have been published, things that are coming from people that I know, but then I also try to pay attention to the preprints that are out there, just whatever comes up by searching for specific keywords and just, yeah. and just seeing what's there and just trying to at least give the benefit of the doubt to papers from people who I don't recognize. And I've, I've been really you know, pleasantly surprised by a number of them over the course of the pandemic. So there's, yeah, in addition great. to this sort of virtue of scientific publishing, I think that there's also this virtue of scientific reception in a way of the ability to read and consume scientific information that also takes quite some real principles. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. My last question before we go on, I know we're going long on this, but I'm just fascinated by this. Yeah. So you said peer review and then there's journals, right? So the journals who do their own selecting processes, which that makes sense. That's how you got yours into the science journal. makes sense. And then there's peer review. Is that like, is that separate where you can just have peers you, you go out, find a number of peers, ask them to review it. They review it publicly or something. Does that give it then more weight? Does it go up the little med 
journal system or? Yes, this is interesting. Not That wasn't true until very recently. So normally mm. the way that it worked was that you would submit your paper to a journal. The editors would then decide if it was maybe worthwhile. And then they would send it out mm. to peer reviewers and then they would review it. And then okay. they, would, they would then communicate with the editor and then they would accept it or not pending certain revisions. But now with more and more papers being posted on these preprint servers, there have been groups that have been going and basically using algorithms to identify papers within certain topics. And they've been taking it upon themselves to send them out for peer review, like to solicit peer reviewers without going through an editorial process with a journal. And then to, I've gotten a couple of emails about this myself, about both as an author and as a potential peer reviewer, where they're like, hey, we found this paper, we think it's interesting, we'd really like to get it peer reviewed, but we know that the, the publishing process is very slow. This information we think is really important. Would you be willing to provide a review? Or we want to notify you that we're doing this with your paper. Let us know if you have any anything you, you want to say about that. And so there's this almost like crowdsourcing of the peer review process that's just starting to take shape. And I think it's it may well change some of the way that scientific wow. publishing is done in the future. I think it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. That's cool. It's like the Uber of scientific publishing. That's right. So it's, like, it's like the old system was a taxi. And now yeah. you're just like, we're, <laughs> we got our own system. Okay. <laughs> it's awesome. Great. All right. We don't have a lot of time. Let's get into some good stuff here. Fauci says that wearing masks might actually be something that's seasonal. So it could be something that stays with us for the rest of our life, at least in seasons. I was going to pick your brain on this because I get the concept of it. At least on the idea of like, if variants arise, definitely. That could be at any point in time. But again, the seasonal thing goes back to flu and it makes me think of that and how it's seasonal. So then there's a little sense of fear of like, man, the, the flu gets intense. So then as every winter, are we going to be really going to be concerned about wearing masks, even if there's not a variant, which seems to be not necessarily the case because we can walk us through this. But again, it's the same thing with the vaccine. The reason why it's crazy is because it's so hard to pin pinhole vaccine for the flu. Whereas COVID right now, we're rocking it at this point in time, at least the mRNA ones and things could change in the drop of a hat, but still it's, what do you think about Fauci, Fauci like suggesting this? Is that a kind of a possibility? But is it more on variants or could it just be even just in general without variants, this could be a, a real possibility? Yeah. And I think that, I think that in some places this will happen regardless of recommendations or whatever. I think that, that there will at least be large numbers of people who do choose to wear masks during sure. the wintertime. We did see that the flu really was at its historically low levels this past year. It's probably attributable to distancing and masking and all of the other things that, that we've been doing. And so I think we've learned something there. I think that so this coming winter, I anticipate that there will be another surge of, of COVID in sort of our hemisphere. And in some ways, I see it as what is likely to be sort of the the last sort of surge of what we'll properly call the pandemic. And then after that, it may enter sort of more seasonal circulation. We'll see how vaccination goes. And there's, yeah. there are different factors that could play into that. But it, what I imagine is that what Fauci is talking about here is that there will probably be another resurgence of COVID that could cause a lot of issues in a number of different places across the US this winter. And masking will be one of the ways that we can help mitigate that. After we get past this next winter, hopefully there will be enough vaccination, enough population immunity that even with the resurgences of COVID, 
you know, hopefully we'll be able to manage them reasonably well. And then, then masking can be sort of left up to more the individual communities and those kinds of sure. things. But many places in the world are already do this when there's uh, when they're in the midst of their flu season and certainly when anybody is feeling any sort of respiratory symptoms you put on a mask like that's just that's like washing your hands and covering your cough when you are like covering your face with your arm when you sneeze that's just part of what you do it's you're putting on a shirt when you go outside (laughs) and so i i could see something like that taking place here too yeah maybe the u.s just struggles it because we just were we, we were convinced we're really convinced that we're really good looking people. We're just somehow yeah. we think we we think we are. We just can't be masked. <laughs> okay, so Biden team, this is something we talked about a few weeks ago, and this is good news. Biden team says it supports waiving patent protections on COVID-19 vaccines. This could be a game changer, especially obviously for India and other places around uh, the world as well. Any insight to this? Because it, again, it says supports it. So clearly this isn't obviously uh, automatic switch that just, right. th- that this unleashes patent or waiving patent protections. But have you guys been talking about this and the pros and the cons and the nuances of all this and the complexities? Yeah, to some extent. And, th- and this is something that I admittedly am not as informed on as I would yeah. like to be. But there's been a lot of people who have been pushing for this. But at the same time, there's been a lot of questioning whether to what extent this will be helpful. I, I imagine that it could be in a lot of ways by releasing the or relaxing the patent rules on these things, then you can essentially give the formulas for making these vaccines and allow them to be produced more rapidly. With the mRNA vaccines, these are really new technologies already, and they take some pretty specialized equipment to produce. So there's been some question as, you know, will, will that actually be very helpful? Or should we just be ramping up the production of these vaccines and focusing on distributing them? And with and, and that depends very much on who we're envisioning we're going to help. India is one of the top vaccine manufacturers, I think the top vaccine manufacturer in the world. Yeah. So they, they have the ability to, to make these kinds of things. So it could be incredibly beneficial for them, might be much less beneficial for some other places. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot of complexity there. And then of course, all of the economics and That's corporate cool. rights sorts of things playing into this as well. And it's it's really complex. I I tentatively welcome it for sure, but that's that's caveated hugely with that I, I don't even begin to say that I understand all sure. of the elements that are in play with this. I am certainly a proponent of just getting vaccines to the people who need them as quickly as possible. Whatever we can do yeah. to make that happen, I think is a very good thing. And I think it's just a matter of how. Yep. Yeah, I don't know anything about this and how the logistics and the economic uh, implications to people who have done the research and actually brought this about. But I would say, even if it doesn't even pan out, just the, the nod of the hat is a huge symbol of solidarity that goes a long way. Even if nothing really manifests from it, besides India, I would imagine just the gesture goes along with it. We're willing to make that sacrifice because we believe in a common yeah, and thankfully it's it's backed up by it's. This isn't the only thing that the yeah. U.S. and other countries are doing. There's, there's, sure. we're, we're talking about releasing this patent law, but we talked previously about yeah. sending oxygen and PPE yeah. and vaccine yeah. supplies and other vaccines that have already been approved and those kinds of things. So yeah. as long as it's backed up with that like real tangible yeah, real support stuff. as well, then yeah, I think you're right. Great. A few more things, small things, quick ones. Just we mentioned a couple weeks ago about at-home testing, found an article from a technology website that kind of reviewed three of them. So I'll put that in the show notes. If you're looking to, uh, just working with a camp, with a camp, 
is looking for a bunch of these. Proud of this one camp I'm working with, Camp Wetiwa. They're an awesome uh, nonprofit camp and they submitted their COVID. It's crazy the amount of stuff you have to submit, like COVID policies or how you're going to run your camp. Yeah. And they were the first ones to submit it in the state of Colorado, a full comprehensive COVID, how they're going to deal with it. And the state of Colorado is going to use it as an example to other all other camps in the Good state of Colorado is how to do it. Yeah. So I had nothing to do with this. I'm not patting myself on the back. I just watched it from a distance and I'm so proud of them. Huge, huge uh, congratulations because it was a lot of work. You guys and gals thinking about these camps, keep them in your heart and your prayers and fund them if you can. Because there's things where young adults, where if they get COVID, they can't be there to be quarantined. And then there's all these policies by which then the parents, so then they can't go back home. So and they're in the 14. So then all of a sudden they're no longer able to come home. So the parents have to fly and take care of them while they're in quarantine. And there's a lot of complications. It's still tons of moms and dads still committing to it. Excited about it. Cases. Who read this? The the country may be turning a corner on COVID-19, which seems to be pretty well in place. And Colorado is still wavering a little bit here. We could see cases and deaths plummet. Again, I guess a tipping point is about 60%, right, Stephen? Like of young adults, if we can get to that point, there's an expectation. I don't know if this is true, what you're seeing, that if we get over 60% of U.S. adults getting vaccinated, we expect a pretty significant plummet in, in cases. Is that what you're feeling as well? Yeah, that's and that's really based off of what we've seen in other places that have reached that level of vaccination. So Israel, for example, and it was roughly around that threshold that, that we really did start to see cases coming down, especially among young adults. We're beginning to see that here in Massachusetts, for example, where we really plateaued for a long period of time. But now vaccine uptake has really begun ramping up in the younger age groups because we opened up on, I think it was April 19th. And so we've had okay. you know, a couple of weeks for people to start to get vaccinated. And now that plateau is just starting to go straight down, so which is great. And so hopefully, hopefully that will continue around the country. It's and this has been, you know, consistent for much of the pandemic that it's generally older people who are at most severe risk of, of the severe disease outcomes, but it's yep. generally younger people who are have the highest case counts who are doing a lot of the spreading yep. of COVID. So that's why I think it's really important. We needed to start vaccination with the most vulnerable to severe disease first, for sure, to protect them as quickly as possible. But really driving cases down, it's going to be important to build up vaccination in the younger age groups. And I think we're starting to see that now. And so I think that's one of the things that's really helping us to begin to get control of this pandemic now. And I'm going to go on a little tangent here, but this is related. So we didn't talk about this, but this is on my heart, on my mind obsessively. And maybe you can guide me and guide other people who are, I know there's, there's millions of people having the same question, Stephen. This is, we're adults. I'm vaccinated. My wife's vaccinated. Things are plummeting. So we're opening the doors for vacationing, right? And so we want our parents to come, my parents come to see our boys and they're fully vaccinated, but they live far enough away that they'll fly. Is there any kind of like policy or recommendations for this situation? Is it safe? For my parents, I'm okay with them, them flying, but then coming to visit us, fine, but our boys are young enough where they're not even on the ticket to be vaccinated until maybe September. Are there any recommendations like, oh, it's okay, the risk is so low, no big deal? Is there any advising the guys are talking about? How would you deal with this situation? Which I'm guessing this is pretty common. There's a lot of grandma and grandpas who are wanting to fly and see their little five-year-olds who aren't vaccinated, but they are fully vaccinated. Any recommendations? Is it just safe to do that if they wear their mask in the airport and we're okay or... Yeah, I think that these these vaccines are are very good, and it's nothing. Nothing, of course, will be zero risk. Sure. Um, we'll always be running some risk of of spreading COVID, someone getting COVID. But I think I think the best way to think about it is to think through like what what could happen here. At this point, the concerns would either be that one of the vaccinated adults gets COVID, or that one of the kids gets COVID. 
And so I think those are like the two classes of things. Okay, so what has to happen for one of those things to happen? So either if one of the adults gets COVID, then you know they get it while traveling, or they get it maybe from one of the kids who's you know yeah. gotten it somewhere else, but they're vaccinated, and so their chances of severe disease and certainly mortality are, are very very low. Mitigated there with kids, their risk of severe disease and illness is pretty low anyway. I think you need to you know factor in: Are they going to school? Are they going to camps? Will they be exposed to other people who you don't want to spread COVID to? And that's something to think about. But if you can have the visit and keep the kids relatively distanced for at least two weeks, make sure that they don't develop symptoms, don't develop COVID in the meantime, then you've both, I think it's a pretty, pretty safe scenario for that particular gathering that you mentioned. And then the goal is to also protect the community around you, recognizing that with with the kids, especially the biggest concern is onward spread. But again, with the vaccines, that risk really diminishes by quite a lot. Okay. Great. Yeah. With our kids, I know it varies. They're not going anywhere. So they're stuck with us. So they're okay. And just kind of, that's helpful. And I you know one of the one option, but I don't think this would actually would really work. Right, Stephen? If you want an extra insurance policy, get an at-home kit and then have sure. my parents take it when they get home. But then again, I, it probably doesn't, it's not, number one, it's not that sensitive. And if they were to go in the airport, it's not like you can take it when they get home really quickly. And then you have, it takes probably a few days before it even would would show It does up, take right? a few days. Yeah. yeah. yeah if they were home. positive, then the test would, it, it would pretty pretty confidently show mm-hmm. it but only once only once they had developed enough virus yep. to show it so yep. um it would have to wait a couple of days so it doesn't hurt to have a couple of those tests on hand yeah i'm thinking about getting some yeah, yeah they're they're, they're available i got one mostly because i'm just kind of curious how they look <laughs> and how you know, awesome. i, I want to hold one in my hand finally but you know it's worth having and so that way if there is any concern you can just kind of like give it a go and again they're not perfect but it's one more piece of information yeah, yeah. that helps you decide what to do so yeah, it's that Swiss cheese layer. Okay, one last question. I know you have to go in a few minutes, but I want to hit this one. Why the world's most vaccinated country has so many new coronavirus cases? We didn't know how to say this. Like, like <laughs> the Seychelles. <laughs> yeah, whatever this country is. Never heard of it. Is there anything behind this that should be of concern, or is there something that's an anomaly to this country? Yeah, there are a number of smaller countries like this that, that have achieved really high vaccination rates, which is... Great. And and so there's been some concern around the Seychelles in particular, where there's a lot of tourism and we've seen cases start to rise, but they have some of the highest vaccination rates in the world. So what's going on here? Part of the story is the amount of turnover that there is, right? So there's there's the, the native population, but there's a lot of tourists coming in who are bringing infection. And there's also just like a lot of turnover in terms of who is actually residing in the country at any given time. So actually getting a a clear estimate of how many people are vaccinated in the country at any given time is really difficult. And and then I think the other main thing is that, you know, there's a lot of variation in the vaccine effectiveness. The vaccines that they've been using in the Seychelles, I think, are some of the ones that were originally developed in China. Are Uh, I I need to double check, but which particular vaccines they are, but they aren't the same vaccines that have been approved in the United States. And one of the Issues with those vaccines is that they are similarly protective against severe disease um, and death. So they're Mm -hmm. very good against that, but they don't seem to be as effective in preventing the transmission of disease like the mRNA vaccines are. And so you can get a lot of spread. But while we don't want to have a lot of COVID spreading, because again, that puts people at risk who may not be vaccinated, it puts other communities at risk. For the community that is vaccinated, that's not necessarily a too alarming thing. Because if everybody is protected against the most severe manifestations of the disease, then all of a sudden it becomes something more like a respiratory illness that we're familiar with and not sort of this thing that's turning our worlds upside down. So even with a lot of spread, it's still worth trying to keep control of spread because we're still very much in this pandemic period. But for this country in particular, 
as long as people are protected from hospitalization and death, it's okay. And it, it's not an indication that the vaccines are you know useless or, yeah. or not doing the job that yeah. they're intended to do. Great. Great. We're going to end this up right here. Quickly, just saw here, FDA is seeking approval for 12 to 15-year-olds. So that should be coming out maybe this week. Huge, great news. Hopefully, if you guys feel safe, get your 12 and 15-year-olds vaccinated shortly. If you're still feeling a little hesitant, I'll put this back in the show notes. It's an incredible article, COVID-19 vaccines, COVID-19 vaccine safety. It has awesome charts, awesome comparisons. It really put me at ease. So I'll put that in the show notes. Check it out if you're feeling a little bit weary. I think that'll help you to get, take the edge off. I think that's it for now. It's all we have time for. Steven has a lot of things. He's got to save the world. We'll let him go do that. We'll save the rest of that for next week. Again, if you can leave a review, please do so. If you can support us, patreon.com slash pandemic podcast, $5 a month or one-time payment Venmo, PayPal in the show notes and check out my Living the Real podcast all in the show notes. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you hopefully with Mark, Dr. Mark next Monday. Take care and bye-bye.